they said, oh, you want to hear something funny? And you're like, oh, that might be good on the podcast. Uh, my brother, not the one you know, my youngest brother, uh, who's a bit of an idiot. And, and he's probably going to hear this, but I love him dearly. So I got one of those my too. dad just got a message that said he's in a severe car crash. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was like, is that a real thing? Like what? So we, my, my brother who people know read Curry in our industry and I started looking it up and sure enough, there's a feature in I-14, an iPhone 14, 14S, I think that is, if you're in a severe car crash and there's no response, it yeah. could be a real thing. And I'm like, is it false positive? Is, is there like, are there scams about this? Um, and then we found out what really happened. He left it on top of his car. And then, <laughs> <laughs> and so it worked as advertised, but he's fine. So yeah, that, so that's what that was in an automobile accident. But oh, yeah. I think it's done. So like when oh, we yeah. tried to call it, I, I don't know if he braked and it just shot somewhere or if, <laughs> you know, it just flew off when he took a corner, but it, I think he's probably got a new iPhone coming soon. Yeah. That's yeah. funny. I won't say well, his name. He knows who he is, et cetera. So, yeah. You Jason, up. thank you. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of On the Hook. Do you want to do a quick introduction about yourself? Most of our listeners know Sam and I by now, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah, sure. No, I, I was really excited when Jacob mentioned you guys were doing this podcast. I immediately, I think I invited myself on before Jacob invited me. Um, and then, yeah, I, and I realized I'm sort of a fill-in for, for for someone you were hoping to have this week. But no, uh, but no, I, I don't care. It doesn't bother me. I'm <laughs> no, it's good to have you here. Happy to, to sit here and talk about myself. Yeah, so I'll give a real quick sort of, um, you know, potted bio just because I know it's supposed to be a little bit personal. So I was born in Chicago, but I grew up in upstate New York. I grew up in Binghamton, New York. Shout out Binghamton. Um, one of the lesser-known Hamptons. Um, and it, but no. Uh, that's Binghamton. That's really yeah, yeah, yeah. That was good. That was good. My, I got it. <laughs> my uh, my father was a was a professor at Binghamton University for forty years, um, and I I went away for college. I went to uh, the state of Minnesota. I went to McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota, and then after college, uh, you know, I gotten into music and playing music when I was in college. I played the drums and did that for a few years, and maybe we can talk more about that later. But um, uh, but uh, played played in bands for about five years, and then went to law school at University of Minnesota. Uh, got married to a girl from Minnesota while I was in law school, and then moved to New York City. So, and I've been in New York City for twenty two years or so. Two kids. My son is about to graduate from Case Western Reserve uh, University in Cleveland with a civil engineering degree. I've tried to get him to go into cyber, um, but no, unsuccessfully. No uh, and I have a 19 year old daughter who is a musician. Maybe we can talk more about the that. drums as well. Is she into drums? No, she's a guitar player and a singer and a songwriter. She's far more talented than, than, than I, uh, ever have been. By, by the way, one of the best movies I saw recently, I, I, I got back from our state conference. I was exhausted and I couldn't sleep because California time I sat in front of the, I was like, Hey, I kind of want to see this movie. It was whiplash. Oh, and awesome. It's amazing. That's Jacob, have you seen it? Favorite movie, which tells you, I guess she has a thing for drummers. It's um, just such a good movie. Oh, Honestly, so good. Man, Jacob, Jacob, have you seen it? It's just awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's just, it's so well that the, it's, 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 a, it's an exploration of like passion and, and, and just, it, it's such an exploration of human condition. It's amazing. So I'm going to watch it tonight. I have not seen it. It's incredible. I, yeah. I, you know, I sat down about 11 at night jet lagged and having been on the red eye the night before and stuff. And I, I, I couldn't stop. It was that good. Yeah. It's really, really good. Totally agree. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so I went to law school, moved to New York, uh, started my professional career at a big law firm in New York. Uh, had no intention of really staying, no offense to the law firm and my colleagues, but I really didn't have any interest in being a partner at a big law firm. And so it was really just a matter of time before I you know, looked for my escape and it kind of fell into my lap uh, about two years and change into um, practicing law. And I ended up jumping over to Kroll. This is in 2002. Um, and I spent my first several years, and this is why they recruited me, is I had uh, experience with uh, e-discovery and helping lawyers use electronic evidence in their cases and stuff like that. So they're hoping I could help them sell e-discovery services to the legal community. And, you know, it was really an interesting and dynamic space at that time, but 
after a few years became much less interesting and commoditized. How long were you there, Jason? At Kroll? I was there for 11 years. I'm wondering if we bumped into each other because I was... Were you at Kroll? No, no I, was, I was a computer associate, and we uh, did a lot with Kroll, and including made a product called eTrust 2020, which I'm having flashbacks yeah. now. And it, it was uh, forensics and where physical and digital met and all that stuff. But we worked with both Pinkerton and Kroll at different times. And we were really... Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Uh, there was an, a dude named Eric. It'll come to me. It's yeah, in the medium yeah. to long-term memory. But uh, you look familiar. Okay. Ooh. But anyway, please continue. It, this this oh, is about you, not that. But like, because yeah. I was in New York at the time, and it would have been the right time frame. But continue, yeah. Yeah, no. So I was in the New York office of Kroll for for eleven years, and you know, after a few years in eDiscovery, moved into you know uh, more forensics. Actually, I was just at the right place at the right time. Uh, a leader unexpectedly left, and I took over leadership of our computer forensics uh, practice. And of course, this is. You know, mid two thousands, nobody was using the term cyber anything. You just get laughed at. Cyber meant something else, right? Like it's cyber yeah, something yeah. Else. ASL. Yeah. So we called it we called it digital investigations. Uh, that was that was it was computer forensics and digital investigations. Um, and yeah, I had a great mentor there who we can talk more about later if we want to. But Alan Brill, um, who's just sort of one of the forefathers uh, in the business, incredible guy was a mentor uh, for me there. And um, yeah, so spent 11 years there and then ma- mainly doing incident response, um, you know, investigations. Um, and then uh, left because I really wanted to start a um, more proactive business. Uh, what And again, this term didn't exist either, but what came to be known as an MDR business, managed detection and response. Um, so, you know, assuming the bad guys are already inside and, and finding them and, and, and getting them out. Or we called it a co-managed sock in those days, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. That's that's exactly right. So yeah, so really wanted to do that, and 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 this isn't a knock on Kroll. They weren't all that interested at the time. Of course, they've subsequently gotten into it, but at the time they weren't really interested in making that investment. And so I was looking for a place to go. I left and went to a company called United Lex um, with uh, with a friend, a, a guy that I had recruited out of the FBI into Kroll a few years before, Ted Tyson. Um, whom you know, Jacob, from our matter together. Um, and so Ted and I left together and went over to start a cyber and privacy practice at United Lex. I recruited another friend, and this is a name you might know, Sam, because he was a visiting fellow at the um, National Security the National, National Security, Security Institute. Yeah, with George, yeah, as I am, George. I actually am now a fellow. I guess I got a promotion, but yeah, yeah, I can yeah. yeah, I don't think he's as involved as he was for a while, but his name is Kevin Noble. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We know of each other. Like we see the lists and that's stuff, what calls said. and that, stuff. That, yeah. That's what he said as well. So he was at a company called Terramark for many years. And that's where I met And him. I knew Terramark. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So Alan Brule introduced us. At, at Who bought them? Was it Verizon bought them? Verizon bought them. Yep. Verizon bought them. And, yeah. Yeah. And that led to Kevin's d- d- departure. Um, uh, but anyway, but we, we had this thing. So Terramark, um, I don't think I'm disclosing anything that's that's sensitive here, but Terramark uh, had an incident response team that was led by Kevin Noble, and they were kind of the special forces that Kroll would bring in for really intense network intrusion investigations. Um, when when we needed some extra, you know, muscle there, we would bring those guys in. So worked some really cool stuff back in the. This is again mid to late two thousands, um, and so he was one when I went over to start this MDR business because we talked about doing something like that back at the time. Um, just didn't come together. And I called him. I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm bored. I said, all right, come on over. So we started this business, uh, uh, you know, at United Lex. And then, you know, I've probably taken way too long with the story, but um, it built the business to a certain scale at United Lex. And we're looking to take it to the next level. And we, but we weren't really aligned with the rest of United Lex's business and what they wanted to do. We were sort of a hobby for them rather than, and that's not, again, I'm not criticizing them at all. I probably would have done the same thing. And they very graciously agreed to let us shop the business around. And, uh, and we brought it to Ankara in 2020. So fully intact, all of our clients, all of our people, you know, all of our gear, everything, you know, it was an asset purchase. We just brought everything over. 
and we've been operating here at Anchor. So I lead, I'm responsible for our managed security services, um, which does include, you know, supporting incident response. You know, we deploy EDR and, and hunt the bad guys around, do containment. Um, but most of what I do is, you know, subscription-based, you know, annual contract uh, uh, MDR services. And then I moonlight as the uh, chief privacy officer at Anchor. Um, so, because I, so I got into privacy law very early. So you've kept this team together through some big sea yeah. changes, right? How, yeah. how long has it been one functioning unit? Since 2015, the core, uh, you know, leadership group um, has been, you know, yeah, continuous since 2015. So yeah, and I that's have to, remarkable. I have to say, yeah. meeting most of them, I would say it's they're all really good quality people. Like yeah. technical prowess aside, I think that's probably one of the reasons they do stick together so well. And yeah. Jacob, this was the, the quality you interacted with to begin with. Like, is that how you met Jason, or was it before that? Yeah. So I'll, I'll tell you. I don't know if I mentioned this to Jason or why I thought Jason was a good person that I appreciated both personally and professionally. And then we could talk about how we met a little yeah. bit. But um, it's a it's actually a very very small story. But um, I think we were sitting there during an incident. We both were working, and I'll let Jason tell the story of the incident because my version might be a little different. Because um, you were secretly the villain in this piece, right? I, yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I, That's what I'm waiting. I'm waiting for the reveal. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, there were certain things I wasn't allowed to touch because there was suspicion of maybe someone with access was the villain. Uh, yeah. I think you look generally suspicious. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's the haircut. So I just got a haircut. I went with the villain haircut for this no one. No more ponytail. <laughs> yeah. You used to have a ponytail. Yeah. I did used to have a ponytail. That one's gone now. But um, oh, so yeah. So Jason and I were sitting there just having coffee. I think while working an incident. I noticed, I think it was on your laptop, Jason, there was an EFF sticker and I yeah. asked you about it. Um, yeah, that's right. I remember that. And we just started talking about like digital rights a little bit and, and what the EFF does and what they stand for. And um, that we both had donated, you know, yeah, small, small amounts. Here that's funny. Stuff. I actually forgot. Now I remember, I forgot we had that conversation, but yeah, yeah, that was, that, one of that was the first. Yeah. yeah, that that wasn't like a just strictly professional. Yeah, we're in the logs, like, Jacob. Yeah, <laughs> right. We're in the logs, and I'm burning them on the side. Um, yeah, so that's how Jason and I met, and we started talking a little bit about that, and um, just even that little bit of conversation, I was able to sort of glean that Jason was a, a one a good person. I kind of respected his ideology and who he was, and um, and then we just got to know each other over doing this incident. We've kept in touch since, so. That was, I don't know, maybe five years ago now, six. I don't know how long it's been. Uh, yeah, but. I think, boy, it's got to be six, maybe even seven at this point. Oh, um, yeah. But we shouldn't be too specific about that. So. No, so it was a period of time. In the ago. before time. Well, right? yeah. Reverse engineering our, our timeline. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. When Jason worked at a company that did incident <laughs> response. <laughs> and I worked at a company. I don't know which one. Um yeah. yeah, it's it's easy to you won't be able to tell based on like looking at my LinkedIn or any of the history I have because there is no way to tie me to what the incident did specifically. But yeah, Jason, you want to tell because I guess you've done a little bit of speaking yeah. in an anonymized way about this incident. We can't yeah. to our listeners, we can't disclose anything about this. Now, incident. now you're going to sound like spies. This is not spy. Um, it's not, it's spy not spy work. Is, it's yeah. just standard corporate incident response. But th that's it's still to protect the, to protect the innocent and the clients. Yeah, yeah. But we can talk about it conceptually. Uh, yeah, sure. it's because it's an incident that that never became public, which you know I always consider a successful <laughs> until today. That's um, the, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, Jacob. Yeah, and and there was a you know sort of mutual respect right off the bat. I mean, everybody on on my team immediately was like, okay, yeah, this guy knows what's going on. He's transparent. He doesn't have a huge ego. You know, he's easy. Well, then I didn't. Now I do. Now, now, now it's just towering ego. <laughs> Hopefully it's, I'm kidding. I don't know. <laughs> no, you're not. But, but yeah, just very responsive and, and great to work with. And, and for the record, I have tried to recruit Jake a couple of times, but you know, don't yeah. have I. We will, yeah. we will work again. To, we'll work together again. It will happen. Yeah. 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 I, I still think Jacob and I will find ourselves in the same place eventually. But, um, but yeah, so we, we got called in to do through the lawyers. That's where, you know, a lot of the incident response work that I do, is, you know, is, is through counsel, through outside counsel. So we were brought in by, uh, by a law firm and it was, um, it wasn't a ransomware incident. In fact, Jacob, if I recall, we never found any malware whatsoever related to, related to this incident. Anyway. I don't think there was any evidence. Is this like evidence? If, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody hears it? If, if, you, if there's an incident and you never find any malware, did it really happen? 
Well, there definitely was an incident. The, the data yeah. proved that someone had access to things they shouldn't. Okay. Yeah. But so, well, there was no and, evidence of it being from exploitation. Well, I have to say, like, the start of this, and I've had, you know, a handful of incidents over the years start this way, which is the way that the victim finds out they've, you know, uh, they've had an incident is a third party tells them. Now, I know it's different. Ransomware is kind of changing. And obviously, that's almost cheating, in my opinion. This was not a ransomware event, but it was. There was a plain old, good old fashioned extortion, stupid human tricks. Yep, that was sent to the to, to the senior executives of this company, saying, "Hey, I have your data, and uh, you know, uh, provide a little proof of life." Um, you know, and 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 I remember this is also going to be too. I'm not going to be too specific about this because you can trace the time if I said the figure, but I do remember what Bitcoin was trading at at the time. And let's say it was still in the triple digits. So that tells you it was, it was quite some time ago. Um, but the ransom, you know, when you did the math, it was, you know, seven figure, nice, healthy, you know, mid seven, seven figure um, extortion demand. Um, but again, that's it. That's all the, that's all the attacker said. They didn't give any indication of, you know, how they got in or what they're going to. So, and there were some other things about the, 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 the message, you know, the, the it was a very well written email indicated some knowledge of the industry uh you know stuff like that that made us immediately think that it was jacob no that, <laughs> that, it, was, that it was an insider incident. it had all the markings of an insider incident and so we did you know we worked with law enforcement from the very beginning um you know with the fbi and and, and uh, u.s attorney's office and it was a you know it was a serious enough allegation that that it did get uh you know attention and anyway uh, it, I do consider it sort of my my white whale case because we never did figure it out. We never solved it. I like to consider it success, a success, though, because, again, it didn't go public. And one of the reasons for that is after a period of time, the attacker mysteriously cut off all communications um, and disappeared. Never to be, or at least to, to this day, has not been heard from again. Now, again... I like to think that it's because, you know, they felt the walls closing in um, and and some things have come to light since then. And I really can't talk about that that make me more confident. And I think I told you about that, right, Jacob? I think we did talk yeah, about yeah. it. But I think um, it's- anyway, so I sleep better. I, I, I've convinced myself that I know what happened now. And so I can sleep better. Um, I think but, what made it so so interesting compared to other incidents too is that usually you show up in an incident, you have some technical evidence, you find a way an attacker got in. Typically, right? Yeah, like, uh, yeah. looking at the malware logs, there's there's usually enough technical evidence, with, with some exceptions. This was a cast of characters, all with different motivations across. All the technical people had motivations. It's like the usual suspects. It was. It, was. it really and was. The politics and the dynamics of the environment at the time created all this weird, <clears throat> infighting is not the right word, but personal dynamics of people that were Personal dynamics, like it's some Game of Thrones stuff going on in the, yeah, the House of Dragons. Yeah, it was, it was it very was. interesting personality-wise. And it was also, it was like 24-7. I mean, I remember, you know, when yeah. we got engaged to do this, it was on a Friday and we had seven people on site Sunday morning at 8 a.m., you know, and, it, and you know, we... That's how those things went. I think people I mean, relate. Yeah, a lot of yeah, people the, on the outside. The investing, sorry, go ahead, Jacob. I was going to say that a lot of people on the outside of incident response look in. They just see the posts, like a four paragraph blog, and like, wow, that's really cool. They found that during this incident. There's people working five days straight, maybe going through hard drives in basements trying to figure out if a hard drive had data. It is grueling, dirty work at times. That is not fun. There is nothing. There was no automation that we could do. There is no inventory we had of which assets could have been affected because of certain parameters. I don't want to go into details as well. But essentially, we had to go through every laptop in a basement. Fortunately, I didn't have to go through every laptop in a basement. But we were, yeah, we were looking through literally like um, recycling bins, those giant recycling bins that are like you know four feet high and and three feet across, full of decommissioned hard drives yeah and um, then end case stuff or like the going yep. through the yeah, rebuilding yeah yep yep yeah. Were you back in those days Sam? if you suspected an executive you would send your team in 
like after hours or when they left it in a car yeah. or in their office and you'd, too. Yeah. you'd go in through a port and you'd suck everything off the hard drive in yeah. a narrow window of time. Right. It's uh, exactly. Uh, that reminds me of a, a slight side story that I don't know if I'd tell it another time. So it's a good one. It has nothing to do with incident response really, but I was doing a network rebuild for a company that I was interning at. I won't mention the company name either because uh, it is on my LinkedIn. There are several that I was interning at. Listeners so. need specifics. Man. No, no. And the company, <laughs> the company doesn't exist anymore. But it's just kind of a funny story of like IT work, and maybe it's not that funny to other people. We'll find out. The so we had had to do this VoIP upgrade, and I was doing all this equipment rehaul, and I was doing it for security purposes, so I could put some new security appliances that I, I was doing. I was tasked. My internship was over the summer rebuild our corporate network. Um, so the company was small enough where they'd have an intern tasked to do that, right? But it was also a big security company. Um, and we were doing this and we got all this, everything set up and we're wiring everything in the office so that everyone could come back on Monday and start working again. And we closed the door to this one office. And as we close it, we realized we locked the building keys that we don't usually have access to in this office. It's the CFO's office, if I recall correctly. And so we just like look up at the ceiling and be like, you think? And we just lift the yeah. tiles up. And so there was, there was no, the walls didn't continue high enough. So people Got thought about like physical security and pen testing. And so they just threw me because I was the smallest guy over the wall. <laughs> and then I got to get the keys and throw them back over the wall again. Or I was able to open the office. I can't remember. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's yeah. awesome. Anyways, back, That's- back to our main story. No, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that case, you know, it really was like, and, and, you know, maybe we'll get into this a little bit too about my journey, so to speak. But I do not have any formal technical training. You know, I've learned a few things from working with people like Jacob and Kevin Noble and Ted for, you know, 15 years now. But I'm, you know, I don't have any technical training. And so really, you know, incidents like this one are the ones that fascinate me the most because it's all about motivations. And, you know, the, 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 the who is actually less important. Now, in this case, it kind of was important, but in most cases, you know, you guys know attribution is a fool's errand mm-hmm. most of the time. But mm-hmm. the why is really important, right? What were they trying to do? What might they do with this access? What might they do with these documents is, is really important. And obviously, the how is always important. Um, most of this well. is human conflict, right? Most of it's, it's human motivation and cons and exactly. conflict, and the tools don't really matter as much. I mean, yes, they do because it could change the way they interact. But uh, as you were talking, I was wondering, was it a gradual progression to more and more technical? Because for all that you say, you're not very technical. You've been exposed to it and soaking in it for such a long time yeah. that you're now, you, you can, you're probably more so than you realize. And you, yeah. you now do privacy. When did you first sort of go, wait a minute, this is what I do now. Yeah, well, it's funny. I mean, yeah, I think those of us who got into this area back when I did in the, you know, certainly mid 2000s, you didn't sort of set out to do it. You just woke up one day and you're like, oh, I guess I'm a, now, you know, I, I wish I could pinpoint the day that I first said, yeah, I'm in cybersecurity because if you'd asked me. Or InfoSec. Yeah. InfoSec, right. Yeah. InfoSec. Um, so yeah, it was definitely a gradual thing. And I still, you know, I still have a ton of respect for the technical people that, uh, you know, that do the, the, what I consider the hard stuff or the stuff that's hard for me, um, and understand my, my role in it. I mean, I, you know, the first time I got, I've spoken at RSA a handful of times. I remember the first time I was petrified. I wasn't even sure I wanted to do it. Um, but I made sure my topic was, so I, I kind of have made a career of going to technical conferences and, and talking about legal stuff. And everyone's like, wow. And then I go to legal conferences and I'm a cyber guy, you know, like, wow. He, you know, so, but yeah, yeah cards, right? guys sort of scare me a little bit, but no, but you do to your point, Sammy, yeah, you obviously you do pick up, you, you just start speaking the language. I mean, that's really what it is. Um, even if I can't do the work, I can understand what's pop, what can be done and what can't be done. And, you know, what the right investigative, what logs we need to make a determination on something, you know, so I still am, am wary about, well, I, I don't, obviously, as I just said, I don't consider myself, um, uh, you know, certainly not a hacker or any sort of, you know, uh, uh, engineer in, in any way, shape or form. But yeah, but I understand the discipline pretty well, just having been. Some, some of the most, some of the, you know, how when you have somebody who's like part doctor, part lawyer, and they become a coroner, for instance, right? And some of the most brilliant people I've met have people with like engineering and legal background and they do things like write patents, 
right? Which is yeah. an amazing skill. Mm -hmm. um, but it turns out that the, the mental capacities are similar for things like music, which you did young, mm -hmm. and writing, and coding, and mm -hmm. law, right? It's that short-term memory buffer. So you probably had some inherent skills there. That doesn't mean that you can just do it because uh, yeah. Dunning-Kruger comes into play, right? At yeah. one end of the spectrum of Dunning-Kruger, you, you learn a little bit and think you're an expert and don't know what you don't know. But at the other end, you may actually know mo more than you know, yeah. Yeah. right? I, I think yeah. you're probably at that end now. And you, by the way, everybody suffers imposter syndrome. Yeah, they're yeah. true experts, yeah. right? Yeah, um, yeah. But you probably are sitting in that intersection of those two skill sets, and so you you don't yeah. feel at home completely in either. Yeah, yeah. But I but I will say to your point, you know, sort of false modesty aside, I guess. Yeah, I feel like I can hold my own pretty well <laughs> in 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 technical conversations. But but part of that is knowing when you know it's getting over my head and not pretending that I know something I don't or that I understand a term or, you know, and, and knowing to call, you know, somebody like Jacob or somebody like Kevin Noble. Um, uh, but, you know, but, the, but, but, you know, the, yeah, some of those investigative instincts and just, you know, understanding yeah, human motivations and, and, you know, and that kind of stuff. That's what I love about the, you know, the, the, this business, uh, even though I don't do it. Actually, I do the perfect amount of instant response now. Um, because it was when, you know, when I was at Kroll and it's, you know, the phone would ring 15 times a week with something crazy. It's fun. But so you know, what is the perfect amount? What, what is the perfect amount? Is it is it like, you know, Tuesdays and Thursdays? Is it? <laughs> well, for me, I mean, I'm very fortunate, like I said, to be at a place with a lot of great people. So I can kind of, you know, flit in and out a little bit and, you know, sort of be on the executive briefing calls and you know, stay up, get updates from the team. Um, but, but yeah, like, you know, as I mentioned, we have a, you know, let's talk about anchor a little bit. We have a, um, a large incident response business. We're, um, an approved provider of computer forensic services under virtually all the major cyber insurance policies. So that's where we get a lot of our incident response workers coming in through that insurance channel. Um, and so, you know, at any given time, I think right now we've probably got, you know, 15 to 20 incident response matters going uh, at the firm. I'm certainly not involved in all of them, but my team is involved in a, a good number of them in a, in a supporting capacity. So we're doing containment, you know, um, uh, with, with, uh, with, with our EDR. But you must be at the point where you've made it a process. And so you're highly efficient and you aren't waiting yeah. for the bat phone to ring or bat, yeah. the bat symbol to go off in the middle of the night sort of thing anymore. Right. Correct. Well, and they're, you know, ransom, I, I, I've, the third time I mentioned ransomware. I, I, it's everywhere. You should. Yeah. And I, I really feel like in our field, there was sort of before ransomware and after ransomware, you know, like everything changed. And, you know, obviously it created a lot of opportunities for, for me and people in our space. You know, you could finally get meetings with people because they were read something in the newspaper and were, were, were scared. And it really, you know, all the companies that thought, you know, security by obscurity would keep them safe, realized that it wouldn't. And so it really opened up a ton of opportunities, but it also gets kind of boring, <laughs> you know, ransomware, you know, um, ransomware investigations. But, uh, but what I'm interested in, and this is really why I wanted to get into, you know, more proactive work is, okay, well, let's now let's focus on making sure that doesn't happen again, you know, mm. uh, and focusing on, you know, where, where I think most companies are underinvested, even the ones that have quote unquote mature security programs are under resourced, underinvested in detection and the ability to detect. And I think, you know, my whole, my, my business, I've been, I, I stole this from Bruce Schneier. I don't know whether he was the one who first said it, but prevention is ideal, but detection is a must, right? That's. Yeah. That sounds like him actually. Yeah. yeah. It, it, well, I, I definitely stole it from him, but. Yeah, whether he, I never could figure out whether he was the first one to say it, but, but, um, but that's, you know, I, that, that, that our, our entire business is really premised on that, you know, that yeah, I, attackers I, stay short and unproductive. I think I said something like that a long time ago because, um, everyone was saying, oh, yeah, we got to prevent, we got to prevent, we got to prevent. And I remember there was a certain, there was a certain, uh, appliance manufacturer who said, Hey, prevent it at the, at the edge and you don't need anything else. And I'm like, yeah, until you're beaten. And then exactly. what? Right. And I said, 
it, there is, it, as long as we have an adaptive opponent who's going to find ways around what we're doing, you're going to have to have measures first to detect it and then to clean it out. So who knows who said it at this point, but yeah. Well, I just name names. So I just saw a billboard the other day that said "Stop breaches." You know, like, <laughs> I don't think I would. You know, so uh, <laughs> I, you can look at my resume and you'll see twenty-two-ish plus years ago, I was at a company where where marketing started to do that for endpoint yeah. security companies. They were like "Stop" and and, and yeah. it was absolute terms. It was called rather than puffery. Yeah. And the FTC came down like a ton of bricks on the industry. <laughs> yeah. And, and, sure. you know, some countries you can't, you, you literally can't do that. Like in Germany, you can't, you can't say it stops. You, you can't make yeah. absolute claims like that, yeah. but you're not supposed to do it in the United States either. It's just, yeah. it happens much more. And it seems like it's sliding that way again. Yeah. Um, I don't like eliminates. I don't like stops or anything like that. I don't think any of us do in the industry. Mm. Well, it's, there's this weird thing that, some technical folks that I, I think are very intelligent end up thinking that you should be able to prevent everything because you can detect everything. And the amount of pseudo arguments I've had on that conversation is staggering, especially because the reality of what we do, and I think I mentioned this on the last podcast we recorded, the reality of what we do is we provide a service to the business. And whether you like it or not, that's what you get paid for. And so we can't prevent everything because then you break the business. Right. And on top of that, technically, we can't prevent everything with accuracy, mostly because we would break the business. Like If you prevented everything that we could detect, most things are false positive still. No one wants to believe that's true. Everyone wants to believe we solved the false positive problem. And it's just not true. And I don't so, understand what it is around technical folks who are just like, well, if you can detect this, why can't you prevent it? Well, like, I, I don't know how to get through to you on this. There's a, there's a number of conferences that I've been to over the years. And I remember I first presented at Black Hat like a long time ago. And there's always somebody who says, I have a new breakthrough, a new architectural breakthrough. And everyone goes, yeah, that's amazing. And everyone's excited. And then one person finds a corner case that breaks it and everyone gets totally depressed. The yeah. fact of the matter is our job isn't to solve it. Right. It's to make a practical means of reducing the efficiency of an attack or reduce the risk and to do so incrementally, right? Make incremental improvements. It's great if we find architectural breakthroughs, but they tend to be false hopes. Yeah, like that, it doesn't. It doesn't tend to have a lasting effect when you have one big leap forward, because uh, it will break things. And uh, so I also teach, and I had uh, some students who reviewed, and I, I'll say it right. It was the, uh, it was the target case, and and they said, hey, they turned off FireEye's auto auto detection. How arrogant was that? I said, I want everyone to think about why you would do that. When was <laughs> the case? when was it? And it, and they were like, oh, it was November. I'm like, and what happens in November? Yeah, I want everyone, you know, and they were like, uh, and, and, and one person said, Oh, that's, you know, run up to Christmas. I said, yes, that's right. That's run up to Christmas. So what don't you want happening? And, and I said, would you believe 75% of most retail business is done in like a two week period yeah. and a false positive taking out one day could be, could ruin the business. That's not arrogance. Yeah. It's a lockdown environment. There shouldn't, you know, one false positive from a virus update and, yeah. or a behavioral detection. With with a one percent failure rate means that every three years you're going to lose a week. Yep. Like yeah. uh, in those two weeks, no, that yeah, that's not arrogance, people. Yeah. Right? But, you know, I dusted off this old uh, talk that I gave probably ten years ago for the first time, and I started using it again because I don't know it just came back to mind that, that I, I start with the traditional equation for risk: threat times oh, vulnerability God. times Nine impact. Times, yeah. Okay. Threat times vulnerability. So in cyber, and that applies in any area of risk, right? That's not, has, has, it's not specific to cybersecurity. But if you look at it from a cybersecurity perspective, you know, obviously our goal is to reduce any one of those variables as close to zero as possible. If we can get any of them to zero, then we have zero risk, right? If you have zero vulnerabilities or zero threat or zero impact, your risk is zero. Uh, the reality is we'll never, we'll never do that, but we got to try to push them all down. There's not a heck of a lot you can do to reduce threats. It's sort of inherent to whatever business you're in. You know, don't say stupid. Can I swear? You can swear. Stupid is not a swear. You know. Yeah, well, no, I was going to say stupid shit. You shouldn't. Don't you just stupid. did. It's okay. Don't, yeah. don't say stupid shit on podcasts, right? That's <laughs> the threat to your organization. Can we beep that out, Jacob? I don't know. <laughs> it's, J it's Jason's brand. It's his, his personal brand. It's up to him. Resume yeah. rant. There we go. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, 
so you, there's not a lot we can do to reduce threat, you know, other than don't do stupid things that draw, you know, ire. Um, vulnerabilities, oh boy, there's a lot we can do to re reduce vulnerabilities. Anybody in our industry will be the first to tell you this and sell you something. But never zero. The, the, not to zero. Um, so that's kind of a losing battle, but that's where, uh, you know, and I've never seen firm statistics on this, but I would guess north of 80% of security spend goes into vulnerability reduction, right? Um, everything from, you know, MFA to, you know, antivirus, everything else. Patching and everything else. Yeah. Everything. So that, so what gets squeezed out is, is impact, reducing impact. And that gets into the, and there's a few reasons for that. It's not easy. It's not install this tool and it'll work in the background. You know, it's, it's hard to reduce impact because it's stuff like data minimization, you know, data classification, access controls, don't have so many admin accounts, you know, all these things, segmentation, network segmentation. There, you know, we even use the term zero trust, which I will not Or less trust, just settle for less, less trust. trust. Yes. So all these things that are hard. And of course, you know, my, where I'm uh, most interested is, is, is detection, right? That's where de de rapid detection and response reduces impact, right? And anyway, so I, I've been, I've dusted that off and started giving that talk again. It seems to be resonating with people, but, uh, but that's, you know, just back to your point. The old, the old ISC squared formulae. Yeah. 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 Right. What's old is new again. So in all this, what do you, what have you done to de-stress? I mean, yeah. So you don't have as many incidents waking you up in the middle of the night. Uh, you used to be a drummer. Um, mm -hmm. what's fun. Yeah, so music is still, you know, a big part of my life. Um, I don't play very much. Uh, I actually play more guitar than drums. Uh, and your daughter plays guitar. You said you, you do that. Right yeah. So so really, my daughter, uh, you know, who's nineteen, uh, plays guitar and uh, and sings. And but most importantly, what she can do that I could never really do is she can write a song. And actually, one of your other guests I listened to. Was it John Dwyer? That was yeah, yeah. That was John. yeah, and he said, I realized that the one, you can be a fantastic musician, but if you can't write good songs, you're just not going to make it, you know? And, you know, and I never, I never kidded myself that I was going to make it as a musician. I really, I knew it was a short-term thing. I had a lot of fun playing the drums. Um, but my daughter, you could tell right away, I mean, she started writing songs at 13, 14 years old and Oh, wow. You know, she's, she's, she's talented. So yeah, so she's 19. She's in a band with, with two other girls uh, who are also, you know, in their, their teens, early twenties. And they have a record contract. They're going on tour. They're selling out shows. What are they called? We, we, we should at least, yeah, we should at least give this a maritime. Yeah. Shout out. Hello, Mary. That's what they're called. Hello, Mary. Hello, Mary. All right. Hello, Mary. Uh, they were, they were in Rolling Stone. Rolling Stone called them the next great New York rock. Love that. Ooh. You know, I mean, I'm gonna add, add, and they're on Spotify and stuff. I can like add. Oh them yeah, and yeah. Stuff. They're on Spotify. Their their debut of uh, LP just came out in March. We'll link them in the show notes too. I'm gonna point down for the video. Awesome. Video yeah, people gonna, down. Go to the show notes. Well, Jacob's gonna put that in there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's great. And some people say, "Oh, you're, you must be living vicariously through it." It's like, no, that's not. I'm not living vicariously at all because she's so much more talented than me. I don't want to be here, but the, be her. But the product, you do want to be here. Do you just want to be her? Yeah, I really want to be here. Freudian slip, um, <laughs> but no, I mean the pride that I get from watching her is far greater than what I would feel if I were doing it. Yeah, I don't know if that makes sense, but that's true. Parenting. Uh, you mentioned you earlier. You, you didn't get her into cyber. Did you want her to get into cyber? Because my dad didn't I, want me to be in, in high tech. Like he he wanted me to to he wanted me to be on the radio and to be a comedian. And I clearly well now you're on the radio. That, just the new version of it. There. Yeah. Well, I'm Jake. I'm counting on Jacob for this, but uh, and you have that iPhone you, joke from the beginning. That's true. <laughs> Actually, no, that's that really happened like five minutes before this. But but <laughs> did you want her to go into cyber? Did she ever show an inclination I, that way? She had very little inclination. My son. I, I actually tried a little harder with my son because he's just you know he's he's an engineer. He has some more you know he's always been a math and science STEM kid. Um, my daughter's always been more artistic and creative. And, um, so no, I didn't push her. I mean, I, I believe in, you know, you expose your kids to a wide range of things 
see what they like, number one, but also try to get a sense of what they're good at. I don't believe in encouraging your kids to do things they're not good at. <laughs> yeah, you want them to be their best selves, right? Like that's yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh. So and it, and for her it was music. And and I, I know I realize it's a it's a long time. I mean they're they're doing great. They're so young, they're getting attention. It's it's amazing. So so but I just I just so, came up with a I came up with a pet theory for you. I want to run this by you. Yeah. And it, and and I'm building on something Bruce shed, said actually. Bruce said so yeah. Bruce said that there are systems out there and there are hackers for every system, right? He said yeah, this yeah. not that long ago, in fact. So like accountants know how to hack the the tax system and lawyers yeah. know how to hack the legal system. And we yeah. know how to hack or at least stop hacks in theory for, for the technology system. But I think musicians know how to hack the music system. And you just said you're not pretty good at hacking it, but your daughter is. Yes. Does yes. that theory sound I, like I right like to you? Or? I like it. I think it's right. But, but I think it's also, it's, she's just innately good. Like, you know, she, she just has the right instincts. I Artists think. are therefore creatives and yeah. creatives can be defined as hackers of a particular. Yeah. Brand. There you go. I like it. Sam. There's my new theory is Curry's theory number, whatever. What? Yeah. Curry's we shouldn't do that. That's really one. arrogant. Like, we, we <laughs> well, if we put it as number yeah. one, as theory number one, then it doesn't seem but it's not. <laughs> yeah. like, I got wackadoodle theories that will come out throughout the series, but yeah. <laughs> um, I like that. So yeah, so, 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 you know, a lot of, so I stay connected to, to current music through her. She has excellent taste in music that I do take some credit for. So she finds like, <laughs> emerging music and says, dad, this is in your wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. Um, that's yeah, good. Her, but her band is kind of a throwback. She's into, you know, it's really sort of 90s inspired, 90s rock inspired guitar rock, you know, which oh, wow. is not oh, exactly nice. what the kids are listening to. Um, but it's what she's always loved. So, yeah, so I love, you know, and I've always been into, you know, quasi underground independent music um, of various genres. So um, I'm, I'm awful, by the way, at emerging music and stuff, but, but. Is it is it me or is it is it the, the the latest generation is either something is happening when things expire from a copyright perspective or what goes around comes around because I heard when I first heard Greta Van Fleet if you've heard them they yeah, yeah. they they sound like reincarnated although they're not all dead Led Zeppelin like they actually do they do yep. who by the way also ripped off a lot of people etc I got it but yeah it, it, there's a lot of styles that are coming back in this generation and i don't know how much they were exposed I don't, to it i don't know if it's just this generation i think it's actually technology makes it accessible ah. so if you go back and you look at record labels before the internet basically you had to put in millions and millions in the marketing into getting the name out there and getting this accessible so you the record labels only pick the sliver of people that they thought could get out there that they would yeah, make their return on investment on um, and if you listen to Taylor Swift's story, so I crib off of this all the time for the record industry. There's some really good um, stories on how she went through that process. Um, no, I'm actually not a huge Taylor Swift fan, by the way, and okay. and she stayed true to it, even though you know really? she moved on to other stuff. I, she still loves. I'm music. not a fan, and I'm going to get so much criticism for saying that publicly. But hate her, hate her. I, I don't hate her. I think no, she's a talented artist and very brilliant from a business perspective. But yes. anyways, that she speaks out against the record industry and about this all the time about yeah. how it costs. And then some people go back and forth in this argument. If you listen to the music industry, they're like, well, it takes us $2 million of advertising to get you seen. But anyway, so since, but, since technology has proliferated yeah. you can go and form a band of any genre and reach your audience and reach this and you don't have yeah. to be a pop hit hitting millions and millions and millions like 40 million listens you could go get a million people that listen to you and you're still successful right well and actually i thought you were going to go a different direction with technology oh yeah, what's your the other thing because the other thing that it does i mean you're absolutely right I, I completely agree with what you just said but the other thing it does I mean, let's give the algorithm some credit here the you may also like stuff I found a lot of great music that way. And, and, you know, I, I tend to find, you know, I'm starting with something old and I'm finding something new, but it goes the other way too. If you like this, you might love Led Zeppelin. Right. And, and so I think a lot of, I mean, I went to see a band a couple of weeks ago called pigs, 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 seven pigs. Um, out of the you just like the name. That's awesome. And they were, I love that you just counted them by the way, to find this. Well, I want to get it. I respect the, I respect the band. I want to get it right. You know, um, but they're out of, out of the UK and they're like a reincarnation of Black Sabbath. Love that. I mean, just heavy, you know, massive amplifier stacks. Like you feel it as much as you hear it. Um, so, yeah, I, and of course, I seek that stuff out. So, I, you know, I don't want to jump to the conclusion that that's popular now. But 
but you do see that. I think it is so technology. It allows for discovery as well as, I mean, when I was growing up in Binghamton, New York, you know, we did not have a vibrant local music scene uh, by any stretch. We we're, at, you know, we go to the record store and buy records and listen to the radio, you know, the Alban That's Brothers. the northernmost Hampton. Yeah. Yeah. The northernmost Hampton. Um, <laughs> But, and honestly, for me, I, I remember this. I, I'll have to go back and look at the year. But Rolling Stone magazine put out an issue sometime in the mid-'80s that was the top 100 records of all time, okay? And um, I, I think number one was, you know, Sgt. Pepper, right? Okay, well, I knew that one. But I think, like, three out of the top five, I'd never heard. Um, mm. Number two, I think, was the Sex Pistols. Never mind the bullets. <laughs> Um, I'd, I'd never heard of the Sex Pistols, let alone listen to that record. Um, it was The Clash, London Calling. Mm-hmm. I heard of The Clash. You know, I, that was like during the combat rock Clash days, so I, I wasn't a huge fan of that. But London Calling and Rolling Stones, Exile on Main Street. Again, I knew the Rolling Stones, but I didn't know that record. And I went to the record store. I bought all three of those. And honestly, like... I don't want to be overly dramatic, but that totally changed the trajectory of my sort of musical taste. Wow. Is that rolling stone? But that's how you had to do it, right? There's no algorithm. So I have to share uh, something and then I'll get to a new theory. Uh, So back in the dot-com bubble, I was at McAfee.com and I didn't understand product management worth a damn because I was chief security architect for McAfee and they said, hey, Sam, why don't you do this product management thing? I said, what's that? And one of the things I had to do was figure out pricing. So I really looked into it and uh, Napster was big at the time. And I looked at it and I'm like, why is the record industry fighting? And I don't know what Taylor Swift ever said about this because I haven't read any of her stuff, but I've heard she has lots of commentary in the industry in general. But it occurred to me the real reason they hated Napster wasn't because it didn't sell records because it did. More records sold uh, from my observation and looking at the numbers than ever before because of Napster. It was the lack of predictability between what they were advertising and who they selected, as you put it, Jacob, and mm-hmm. the results. So they could put money behind a band and it didn't do anything. And the, the, the bands they didn't back did very well. So it was a complete threat to the music industry. And so that's why they really went after Napster. And because it was the original sharing. And so the, the algorithms were doing it right then. The mavens were finding the music and they were spreading it. And people were then downloading what they liked much more so than what was being pushed. And so now that the new theory I'm going to come to, um, <clears throat> somebody we're going to have on as a guest in the future, Dan Meisler, um, he started to talk about the availability, what essentially generative generative language models in ChatGPT is, are going to lead to one of the consequences, if you read his blog, is finding talent generally in the creative spaces is going to change a lot. Um, and, and I would say that this is actually where, where Napster was threatening to the music industry. And we're seeing threats now more generally to the music industry now that you just can't stop. These models are threatening to many more industries. Yeah. And so the, the fear, and here's, here's my new pet, like theory number two of this podcast. It's not the generative language models are even AI or that they're going to take over the world, which is ridiculous. Right? We're nowhere near that. Yeah. No. It is instead that those who currently are, have power now aren't necessarily going to be able to maintain it. They're going to run into the same problem the music industry had previously. It becomes unpredictable. So, of course, we should put a pause on generative language models. That's that. There's my 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 tin hat theory for everybody. And, yeah. and I'm waiting to hear the, the commentary on that one. So, Jason, if you think I'm out to lunch... Please, no, me. I don't. I don't. You know, I, I saw one of the in, in the prep materials. You know, you, you guys asked you, are there any current topics that you want? We to have talk prep about? materials. Is that a thing? And I was, yeah, yeah. I got a whole prep. I have a whole prep Sorry, form that Sibel manages and gets everything sent out. Yeah. awesome. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, but one of the things I was going to say is one thing I don't want to talk about is generative. Uh, oh, I did it. I'm sorry. No, no, no. But I, only because, only because. I don't know what else to say. Like I, I have obviously I've been. I'm tired like, of the conversation. I'm shamefully obsessed with it. <laughs> I, I think that's really what it is. Like I, you know, was using the OpenAI thing right when it opened up. Whenever mm-hmm. it was in November, and got totally obsessed with it. And I was a beta user of the Bing implementation of it. It's a and great I use tool. it every day. Yeah, yeah. I use yeah. it every day. Me too. Um, and I am both, you know, very excited and horrified by it. But honestly, I. 
I think we just have to wait and see. And I think that's what you like. I, I, I can't, I don't know what else to, I don't know what to say about it that hasn't been said better by somebody else and by you just now. I'll, I'll make one last comment, then I'm going to make us go back to interesting Then we'll go topics. back to you. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. we'll, um, we have one one more thing that we should talk about, Jason, and Sam's oh, yeah. got a good story on this topic too. Um, yeah. But I will say, I've been digging in a lot on the developer side of the people, the underpinnings of what's happening with this. And there is so few people that actually know what's going on and they can actually code just on top of not even create new algorithms, create new... It's just like Bitcoin, how they're Bitcoin bros. I'm sorry if you're a Bitcoin bro, but... Like there's chat GPT bros now, and it is driving me insane trying to find the real content of like, how do I implement this library and do this call with the API and then take that data and store it. And so like trying to figure this stuff out, there's like four people doing it and there's more yeah. than that. But we need, we, we're going to continue to need hackers for code. We're going to continue yeah, to need right. So anyways, music really. end of GPT. Let's talk about oh, yeah, motorcycles. Okay, now, now that it came, I'll, I'll say one more. <laughs> All right. More. Then motorcycles. Then which it's motorcycle the, time. Which is the oh. thing. The boy, yes. Motorcycles are next, everyone. So stay tuned. We're almost done with the AI. <laughs> um, there too, yeah. But I think what what we're interested in, you know, at, at Anchor when it comes to AI is you know helping you know first ourselves and then others use it safely and and effectively. Yes, I guess, but you know mainly safely. And you know, so so developing an advisory practice around that. We're you know, there's a lot of you know name an organization that isn't you know trying to figure out how to how to implement it and you know if it's done badly this could be uh, you know just a you know talk about risk i mean it's, it's just a total waste of time. funnily enough the attackers will keep this Risky. i think from relying on it too heavily but yeah. uh they are good for that yeah yeah i i, I don't want to ever say they're good but yes you're right yeah yeah yeah. So motorcycles. Yeah. Yeah. So we have like, we usually do about an hour, Jason, which I say once we cool. get towards the end, which yep. we've got about 10 minutes, yep. um, 15 minutes of content that we can keep going to keep our hour limit. But yeah. So yeah, Jason, you just you broke the fourth wall again. That is terrible. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Uh, so yeah. Tell, tell us about how you got into motorcycles. Tell us about your journeys and like your, your awesome trip. I think you, you still last ride. Year. Is that a big thing? I do. It has become a big thing for me again now that I'm, you know, empty nest. Um, but I first got into motorcycles when I was when I was very young in my teens. I think, I, yeah, definitely before I had a driver's license, uh, I had a 1979 Yamaha IT175. And for those guy. of you out there, little little motorcycles, that is like an early, still relatively early at the time, enduro motorcycle. So it had a headlight and a tail light. I'll put a picture up in the video um, podcast. So yeah, video. Such if a you're a video watcher, I'll put a picture right here for you. you if you're to. not watching the video, I'll go watch the video. It's, such, it's still like favorite, my favorite motorcycle to look at of the ones that, that, that I've owned. Um, so I had that and just tore around on it with my friends and, and loved it. And um, But then, you know, I went away to, to college and I didn't ride at all from like, so that's age 18 until I was in my early 30s. You know, because living in Brooklyn, like what better place, you know, to buy a motorcycle and start riding again? <laughs> makes total right. sense. Yeah. It makes total sense. God, so can you I imagine went, riding across the Manhattan Bridge? Oh, no. Uh, I, well, I, I don't have to imagine it. I actually, I may be doing it right after this podcast. I'm going to meet my dog. Wow. Dinner. Um, but uh, that's yeah, a grading, it, that's a grading bridge, isn't it? That's. No, no, Manhattan no. Bridge is. Is it the Brooklyn it's, Bridges? There are parts of it that have the. There are, none of the bridges are full steel deck. Because the uh, first one that I rode that was just pure grading, and I had this vision of me just sliding like over a cheese grater, was uh, between Cornwall, Ontario, and Messina, New York. And uh, let me just tell you, the bike vibrates, and you realize it's, it's just a horrible experience. I, I thought it. I thought it was one of those, but please continue. Yeah. I never no, get scared from that. I don't know why. There's something there's something broken in my brain where that type of thing doesn't create fear in me. And I don't know why. That is weird. Yeah. Like I, I'm just like, oh, this is fun. Like my brain thinks it's fun. Yeah, I like, no, I, 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 I it's not like the steel bridge decks. And we do have a couple yeah. of long ones in in, in, uh, in New York. And yeah, when it's windy and I'm on one of those, well God. Yeah, the wind though, that will get me. <laughs> um but yeah, so, so I started riding again and I got I, I had a uh BMW F650GS. That was sort of my first bike back into, and it's another sort of, you know, dual sport sort of, although that's very road focused uh, bike. 
Um, but I wasn't riding it much. I, my kids were small. I felt guilty every time I went out on it. And so I sold it. And my, my first bike was a 650. Point. It was a Honda yeah. Civic 650E, which was oh, yeah. in Canada. Yeah. Yeah, yeah man. Good. Well, that's the So the next bike I bought a couple of years later was a Kawasaki W650. It's great. Like it's a, a great engine car. size. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. It is. It is. Uh, so I rode that around. But that it's a it's a nice city bike. But I really wanted to do more. You know, sort of because in New York City, like the, the the time to ride is very early in the morning on the weekends, and you just you just jet out someplace out into the country. It takes you you know somewhere between forty five minutes an hour and a half to get to a cool place to ride. And so you want to have a motorcycle and go fast to get you you know where you want to ride. And then you know I like to go off road. So anyway, so I sold the Kawasaki, didn't have a motorcycle for another year or so, and then bought a uh, BMW 1150, uh, GS, that really kind of changed, you know, that's a large motorcycle, but it is unbelievably capable off-road like that low center gravity boxer engine and started doing, that's what I started doing. I I hate that it's called this, but I can't change it. It's, it's called adventure motorcycling. Ooh, that does sound a little... Hardy Boys kind of thing. Yeah, like, sort of, nothing wrong yeah. with that. But yeah. nothing. You know, I like the Hardy Boys actually. Me too. Maybe that's maybe there's a connection there. Um, yeah. But anyway, You're so investigations. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. So you go. So uh, so so I pack camping gear on this thing. You know, go out sometimes by myself, sometimes with friends, and we sort of ride. You know, off on you know trails and abandoned roads that that have been mapped. I mean, GPS has totally facilitated this rise in adventure motorcycles. You can get all these crazy maps from people um and actually new england like like massachusetts vermont huge up there a lot of people do i got to let us know when you come up here because uh we can put we can give you a base to stop at but yeah that'd be awesome yeah so my main ride now i'll let you i want to hear you guys talk about bikes but my my main ride i do still have the bmw but my main ride now is a ktm uh 790 adventure r which is like the perfect size um, you know, bigger than the 650, but not quite as heavy and scary to ride in the woods by yourself as an 1150. Yeah. It's a perfect bowl of porridge. Yeah, it's right there. Yes. Right in the middle just right. Yeah. yeah. So Jacob, you, you, do you still ride? Did you ride? Oh yeah. Uh, all the time. I do. Um, I do one trip a year, at least that's a, a vacation trip where I take a week off and all I do is ride. And I usually do that with my dad. Um, so my dad so cool. has been riding for a long time and we got into riding together. Um, when I got some, sometime between when I got out of college and now <laughs> timeline is so difficult, but yeah, so I've gone through a bunch of different bikes. Um, I've had a Ducati Scrambler, a KLR 650, which is like the industrial grade adventure version bike. of an yeah. adventure bike. I like can just throw it off a cliff and it still runs. Somehow. You can, man, those things, I see a lot of those out in the woods and they are, yeah, they just, they're yeah. yeah, I'll just, I could drop in the woods, et cetera. Um, Right now, the the bike I've been riding is a non adventure bike, but I will still take it on class two dirt roads and stuff, which is a BMW BMW R twelve hundred TR whatever it is, whatever class it is. It's the big sport touring twelve hundred BMW. Yeah, um, and it's it's just such a blast to ride because it's, it's an RS, right? Isn't it an RS? No. Yeah, maybe that's what the des. It's not the RS designation. It's, okay. it's the RT. It's the touring like well, really the RT. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And it's, I'll send a, I'll put a picture actually up here too. And I'll send a picture, Sam. Um, so you gotta find, you gotta find my old bike. Cause I don't, I don't ride now, but if you find that one, it was a great bike. Mine had the bikini fairing. If you're looking for a picture. Oh, I love bikini fairing bikes. Yeah. That's oh, so yeah. cool. Um, so yeah, I've been riding that bike now for a year or two and it's just a blast. Like it goes everywhere I need. I can throw anyone on the back. I can put my girlfriend on the back and it's comfy for her. I can yeah. do long touring on it and it drives like a scooter for some reason, like that. The BMW ergonomics. I love I love scooters. Scooters are one of my favorite things. I go to Florida sometimes for like a vacation. I rent a scooter instead of a car and just scoot around down there. I love scooters. Not a segue. I use those Rebel scooters in New York City. I use those all the time. I got the right. app. I love it. Yeah. yeah. All right, so Sam, you have a fantastic story. All right, so I tell you why I don't ride anymore, and you should never say this to people who ride bikes because then they're going to be like, "Really? No, we don't care." Yeah, so. <laughs> you have to be okay with death so, to ride a bike. So when I uh, when I learned to ride, I learned in Ontario, and the Ontario Provincial Police did a whole lot of really cool like training. I did like the stunt riding, and I did um, the weekends with them. 
they and I did like three of them, right? And it was and I was really proud of my low speed maneuvers because I was told early on like if you're good at low speed maneuvers, you're going to be a good rider. Totally right. That is absolutely mm-hmm. correct. Yeah. Very true. And you know, like and 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 I really wanted to be very not just very safe, but very talented on the bike. And it, and I was, but then I was working a lot. And um, what happened is I had about two years where I didn't ride. And then I was visiting my brother in Massachusetts, the young one who I called an idiot earlier, by the way. So you should take that back. And his girlfriend lent me her bike. And the two of us now, oh, I got to back up a bit. So this was right when Phantom Menace came out. So you can like mentally imagine it. And I had secretly gone to see it with some friends in Canada. And uh, I was actually interviewed by Radio Canada. If you can find the video for this, it'd be even funnier. But I did like a Chewbacca impression. But anyway, I didn't want my parents to to know. I didn't want my parents to know. That's a teaser for a future episode. You realize if you can find it, that's impressive. It's, it's, yeah. Was it 98 or something? How much does a private investigator cost? Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't want my parents to know because it was a family thing. My, my other brother was born the night I went to go see Star Wars. So every time a movie had come out at that point, we'd gone to see it as a family. And my dad had tickets and I came home. And that's what the reason I was at home. So my, my, my youngest brother, Ben, and I went out and we were riding and I took a very sharp 135 degree turn going uphill and hit some sand and the bike kicked, you see, yeah. And the bike, cause yeah. it's hard to do a, a, when you're slowing down, going up, going up, tight turn, hit some sand, the bike kicked out from under me and I slid under a truck going the other way. Oh no. Now the good news is you no the bike or you without the bike. Oh, I was on the bike. Yeah, so going sideways under the. Oh god! Yeah, and it dragged me, but the truck was slowing to a stop, so it's not as dramatic as it could have been. And my brother behind me is able to to cut the truck off, so it didn't continue accelerating with me stuck under it. Good. So I hobbled away. We got the bike out. The bike was damaged. I was kind of in shock, right? And so we got picked up. We didn't tell my dad what had happened. Good move, probably. Yeah. So I went to the movies with him, like, which is just dumb because about about maybe 15 to 20 minutes into an, I'm sorry, I didn't like Phantom Menace and I like Star Wars into an awful movie the second time where I'm pretending I haven't seen it. The pain hits me and my shoes filling with blood. So at that point, I told my dad, hey, um, I was just in a motorcycle accident. Can we please go to the hospital? So we went to the hospital and in the triage, they say, what happened? And I said, oh, I was in a motorcycle accident like three hours ago. And then I went to the movies. So the triage puts me over like the last oh person God. to go in. And by the time they took me in, I was out and they had to hook me up for, for like blood transfusion and stuff. Like my shoes were full. And so like, okay, this has like become a horror story. But since after that, it turns out I had a slip disc, which is fine now and a bunch of other stuff, but it was, it was a nightmare. And oh. so I don't ride bikes anymore, basically. But um, it's, it's such There's an example story. of like a typical male silliness to be yeah. like, I'm fine. My shoes are filling with blood. Like, it's so ridiculous it was story that it becomes comical again. Like how ridiculous yeah. that is. Well, the other lesson when yeah. I really thought about it is like, if you're, if you're not riding a lot, it's sort of like any skill. Like if you're not doing cyber and forensics now, you get out of, you get out of, you know, you're no longer the talented guy you used to be. If you're not riding the motorbike, it takes a while to get those. You may have spinal reflexes, but you're not an expert again. Like I should have seen that, that coming. I should have known, oh yeah, mm. it's spring. Yeah. Maybe there's some sand on the road. Like this was not stuff yeah. that I, I should have forgotten. And I was good, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I never try to talk anybody into riding motorcycles. Um, I loved it. it. I, by the way, what an amazing! It was an amazing. Thing. I used to ride from Ottawa to Rochester, New York, because my dad did about a week, a month of work there. He was a chip designer, and he was working with Fujitsu. And it was great to just ride down and spend a couple of days with him, and then ride back. And mm-hmm. it, that's a four and a half hour ride through through the White Mountains is amazing. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Yeah. So aside from the fact that you, you get covered in bugs and uh, oh, know, I have a, I have a great know, those huge that bugs that hit you on the, on the shore of a large lake that hit your mask. Uh, I have a great yeah. photo of yeah. that where I'll, I'll consider putting it up, but it's these glasses I was wearing in uh, the Florida, which uh, parks down there to the national park. Everglades. Everglades. Everglades thank you. Wow, my brain's done for the day. I was going through the Everglades at night on a scooter 
And I had to stop like every five minutes because my face was completely coated. And these glasses, I was wearing these glasses because I integrated them completely. I had to squeegee the bugs off and then like ride for five minutes. You just reminded me, the other thing that happens is when it's raining on the bike that I had, because you'd sit upright, that uh, I'd have my leather jacket on my cow on, right? But essentially, the rain would hit you and then it would pool about four or five inches deep in between your legs and the bike. And so you'd have yeah. this like cold lake and, yeah. and yes. it was awful. Yes. So, but that was part of the experience, right? And still it is. is for you, Jason. It is. It still is. <laughs> is for you. Oh, uh, I think it here, though, goes a long way. No, oh, it goes so far. Yeah. Yeah. I really like that stuff. I think it's probably a good place for us to call this an episode. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for coming on. This oh, is, no. this is yeah, Jason, fun. I hope you enjoyed this because we. It was awesome, guys. Yeah, no, I, I really did enjoy it. And, um, you know, I, I, I talked to Kevin Noble about doing this you guys should have him on or maybe have us come yeah. together we're we're oh, we'll have you both on sometime yeah below. we'd love yeah. to do that yeah because we've known each other a long time so that would be fun but no this is great